Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When you see Peter on the day of Pentecost, you're really seeing Peter at his best. You're seeing Peter transformed by the pouring out of the Spirit. Um, Not perfect, but from this point forward, Peter is going to go forward in boldness as a leader in the church. And occasionally, as you keep reading through the New Testament, you get nostalgic and you start missing old Peter a little bit. Peter, who in the days of Jesus was always asking the wrong question and, and not taking the right answer for the answer. Peter, who was always saying the things that the rest of us would have been saying, except we were too smart to say those things out loud. That Peter. In Matthew 18, Matthew recounts one of these episodes where, where Peter brings a, a question that's stumping him to Jesus for some, some answers. In Matthew 18, the question he brings is the one about how many times do you have to forgive? Peter brings the question, probably he's been ruminating over this, and he's come up with a number, and and the number he has in his head is seven. And when you read enough, you kind of guess Peter, when he asked the question, seven is probably for him this impossibly high number. And and he's expecting maybe Jesus will say, no, 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 Peter, you're you're too good. Of course, seven is too many times to have to forgive. Two, two is, is more like it. But when he asked the question of Jesus, Jesus doesn't go in that direction. He goes in the other direction. And instead of seven, he, he gives him an impossibly high number, 77 times, to forgive 77 times, to be that forgiving. And then Jesus tells a story. And the story he tells is interesting. This is a story about a servant who owes a debt to his master, and the master just forgives it. He doesn't put him on a payment plan. You know, he doesn't say, well, We'll we'll put up with it for now, but later on, you've got to come up with the money. The master forgives this debt, this impossible-to-pay debt. And so the servant who's been forgiven turns around, turns to a fellow servant who owes him a much smaller debt, and prosecutes the guy for the unpaid debt. When the master discovers this hypocrisy, he's, he's furious, and he punishes the servant who was forgiven. Now, you can imagine when Jesus finishes the story, Peter thinking about this, thinking about the implications of the story and saying, um, okay, so 77, that's the number, and taking it very literally. But what Jesus is illustrating is a principle that maybe even goes farther than that. Jesus is saying, to those who are forgiven, forgiveness is expected. Those who have been forgiven must be forgiving. That's the idea. When uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote that Christianity... It's not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and not tried. This is the kind of lesson he had in mind. That the teaching of Jesus on the subject of forgiveness is so difficult, so inconceivable, even to those who follow him, that mostly we just don't try. Mostly we just don't even aspire to live up to the standard that has been set by Christ. And yet, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom Jesus came and established is a kingdom of forgiveness. It's a kingdom where sin is forgiven, where offenses are set aside, where debts are forgiven. That's the kind of kingdom that Christ has established. And that transformation 
in the people's hearts is so important that you could almost say that everything that we've talked about over the last 10 weeks, as we've looked at the kingdom from, from this angle and that angle, that you could sum all of it up by saying that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of generosity, that Christ's kingdom is the generous kingdom. And if it isn't that, then it isn't the kingdom that he came to proclaim. In our text, you see this this principle of generosity at work. And we learn some things about the, the unique character of the age that this is taking place in. As I said earlier in the series, the apostolic age, those days after Christ's ascension, when the apostles were still doing the ministry that they'd been called to with the power of the Spirit, that was an age like no other. It was an age of revelation. It was an age of signs and wonders, as Luke tells us. During this time after Pentecost, miracles, wonders were being performed. And we're told they're being performed through the apostles. Dia is the preposition here in Greek. It's deliberate, not by the apostles, but through them. They are the instrument through which these signs and wonders are performed, but it's not them who are responsible for them. Through the apostles, signs and wonders are performed. And Luke says they created awe. The people were filled with awe. In Greek, that word is phobos, which is where we get our word phobia, fear. Have you ever wondered why it is when we talk about the fear of the Lord? Uh, we talk about reverence and awe. That's the reason, because originally that word has a range of meaning that it doesn't really have in English. We don't think of fearing someone as good, but in Scripture, to be filled with phobos, to be filled with awe at what was happening. They're seeing signs and wonders that say to them, the rules have changed. The world doesn't work the way I thought it did. God is revealing something, and it fills me with awe. If you look in Acts chapter 4, the last part of chapter 4, which is kind of a preface to the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, which is a great uh, chapter to preach on when you're trying to raise money for the building fund or something like that, but uh, we won't get too far into chapter 5. But in chapter 4, you've got some parallels that help you understand a little bit what's going on in chapter 2. We're told in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. And the word translated grace there is the same that's translated favor in Acts chapter 2 in our text. So the signs and the wonders that are being performed through the apostles, they have a purpose. It's not just to show, oh, look at all of the the cool wizardry we can do because we're now apostles. The signs and the wonders lend great power to the testimony that is being proclaimed by the apostles, the testimony to the resurrection. And because of that, this Christian community receives great grace during this time. There's been the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and they benefit from this. What kind of community does this awe create, this great grace? What sort of a a group of people does it create? In Acts 2, verse 44, Luke says, it creates a community that is together and sharing. They are together, and they are sharing. They're together in the sense of unity. 
the people who come to Christ and have the power of the Spirit poured out on them, they are united. They are together in the same way that that upper room community before Pentecost was together. They are now together, but they're also sharing with one another. There's a generosity that erupts in Acts 4.32. We get kind of a parallel statement of the unity when Luke says, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. The character of the unity of the people of God is that they were of one heart and soul, which is more than just to say that they were like-minded. But a lot of times when you think of unity, you think maybe of doctrinal or theological unity being of the same mind, which is important. That's something we're called to, but we're actually called to more than that. The unity that we're called to involves like-mindedness, but also a oneness of heart and soul, a oneness of feeling and longing, a unity in those things, not just up here, but the whole person in union with the body of Christ. And that unity produces generosity. It produces generosity. In Acts 4, Luke describes the the nature of the generosity, what, what it is that they're doing for one another. He says something that I find astonishing. This is Acts 4.32b, like the last part of the verse. It says, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In both passages, that idea is repeated. They had everything in common. And no one thought of his possessions. No one thought of the things that were his as his. They had everything in common. The word for in common there is, is koine. It's the same word that's used when we talk about New Testament Greek. It's koine Greek. Uh, it means sort of the, the language we all have in common, the language we all speak, the language we share. Sometimes New Testament scholars say that because of the fact that throughout the ancient world, this type of, of uh, common Greek was spoken everywhere, that it was a providential time for the gospel to emerge because it was possible for the apostles to go all over the Roman world, all around the Mediterranean, and and communicate with people there. So if you think about that, the common language, the mother tongue of us all, we can all get by and communicate in this language. And now imagine that your stuff is in the same category, like that the things that you possess, the things that you own, are common in the same way that the language is common. And uh, as you meditate on that, I hope that, that you're growing uncomfortable. So you start thinking about what you have, what you hope to have, what you own, or at least uh, have a mortgage on, and you start imagining what it would mean for that not to be yours, but to be common. You don't have to look around, but if you kind of imagine the people seated around you, to think that the stuff that you have, that they have a right to as well, should make you a little nervous. And this is the reason why, usually when you preach this passage, as a pastor, the first thing you do is reassure everyone, well, it doesn't mean what it says. Don't don't worry, don't worry. This is one of those passages in the Bible that you don't need to take seriously. No one needs to get uncomfortable here because obviously they don't mean what it sounds like they mean. But I'm going to suggest to you that, that Luke means exactly what he's saying, that that is exactly what was happening in this community. As inconceivable as it is, the people that the Spirit was poured out on looked at the things that they had and didn't think of them as theirs anymore. 
they thought of these as all resources that we have in common, resources that we have for a purpose. To have this attitude, the Christian community had to start valuing its people more than it valued its possessions, more than it valued its property. Literally, they were using the property to serve the people. Typically, it's the other way around. This kind of thinking was only possible if these early Christians had a view of the world that that put a great trust in the abundance that God had promised rather than a fear in the scarcity that they saw all around them. We'd all love to be generous if only we had enough. I'm sure all of you would be generous if you were billionaires. You'd be so much more generous than the billionaires who actually are billionaires. Much better rich people than the rich people are. If only, if only God had given you all the things that he'd given them. That's not the kind of generosity this was. It wasn't like flowing out of their excess. It wasn't because they just had so much that they could afford to sell off some property and, and, and help out and pay back. Right? We have no reason to believe that, that the gospel was especially good at recruiting the wealthy. It's just that the people that, that were brought into the community saw wealth differently than they had before. They started believing in God's promises of abundance. It's not that they themselves were rich, but they were now the people of a God who had made everything and who owned everything and could do anything with what he had made. And that changed the way they saw the stuff that was theirs. Didn't see it that way any longer. In Acts chapter 2, we're told in verse 45 that the, the people who owned things, possessions, belongings, they would sell those things and that the proceeds were distributed among the community to those who had need. In Acts 4, 34 and 35, the process is described in a little bit more detail. The owners sell their property and they bring the proceeds into the church. They lay it at the feet of the apostles and the apostles distribute it as the need arises. So you see a role here for the church in doing this work as well. The result of this was astonishing. The result of this generosity was astonishing. It allows Luke to make this statement in Acts 4.34, there was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them, not one. There was not one person in that community in need because of the generosity of those early Christians. They took care of the needs of others. Generosity has a source. If you want to become more generous, you need to reflect on the generosity that's been given to you in Christ. Our generosity toward one another flows from Christ's generosity toward us, which is an easy thing to say. A very difficult thing to live. Uh, the difficulty is illustrated by the fact that I can no longer bring into public the Bible that I was given when I was in high school. When you graduate high school, uh, sometimes someone will give you a nice Bible to take with you into life, and I was given such a Bible, and I brought it uh, to college, but I made the mistake of, of putting marginal notes in the margins. Whenever I would read things that I was surprised by, I would just make little notes to myself. And if you take this Bible, which I have, but it's carefully hidden, and you turn to Acts chapter 4, sometime circa 1987, 
young Mark in the margin of Acts chapter 4 wrote in really tall letters over and over again, really dark, uh, the word commies with exclamation marks and question marks to, to illustrate my incredulity. Because I'm going along reading my Bible, and because I grew up in church, I knew that God is a free market capitalist. And suddenly, I get to Acts chapter 4, and the church immediately is going off the rails, and they seem to be abolishing private property and, and creating this authoritarian commune where everybody has to sell their stuff and bring it to the apostles for distribution, and if you only bring part of it, you're struck dead. And I just thought, what is going on? This, this doesn't seem right. Um, so, so I learned a little bit over time, and that's the reason why this Bible is, is preserved, but, but hidden well, so that no one can see the sorts of things that, that I wrote as I was developing my thoughts here. But, but there is, let me, let me try to give like a more sophisticated version of the objection. So it's, we've just passed Thanksgiving. If uh, you never have, I would encourage you to put on your reading list William Bradford's book on Plymouth Plantation. There's actually a history of the process that the pilgrims went through in forming that community in the early 1600s. And when they started off, they attempted something that we would see as, as very much like a commune. All of the people in their party uh, put all of the proceeds of their labor into a common pool and then distributions were made from that in order to support the people. And guess what? It didn't work. People starved. It turns out that because everything belonged to everyone, no one who was actually responsible to go and work would go and work. They would all find reasons not to, and then they would still get their handout from the common store. But the common store dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until Bradford figured out this wasn't working and changed things up. And what they did was they parceled out the land, and they gave each family a certain degree of corn, and, and suddenly, he says, uh, the result was that everyone became, quote, very industrious. And suddenly, people who had never gone out to work before were going out to work. He says mothers are bringing their children out into the fields to work. Now, he says it like it's, it's a wonderful, heartwarming thing. We might be like, hmm. But suddenly, they have a stake in it. Right? And, and as Americans in the 21st century, we look back and say, of course, of course, this communal stuff is never going to work. Everybody has to have a stake in the results. You have to be responsible for yourself in that way. That just makes sense. As an economic system, that makes perfect sense. But I think if we look at Acts 2 and Acts 4 this way, we're making a categorical error. If we look here and we think that what's happening in the early church is the introduction of a new sort of experimental economic plan, then we don't actually understand what's happening in the context of Acts chapter 2. What's happening is not the church's plan for economic reform. What you're seeing here is, in fact, a description of spiritual fruit. A description of spiritual fruit. Now, I said we're not going to go into Acts 5 and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's fascinating. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to do that. But if you do, you will discover the church is not forcing people to sell all that they have and bring the proceeds to the apostles. It's something people are doing voluntarily, something they have a desire to do. The apostles are not saying, hey, from now on, forget about this capitalism thing. We've decided to go full communist, and all your stuff is now ours. That's not what's happening. 
This is something happening in the hearts of people as they discover that spiritual power and unity. It changes their attitude towards their own possessions, and they do this. It is not done to them. It is not done for them. They do it. It is fruit from their own heart. The apostles are not creating a new economy top-down any more than, than the gift of tongues put all the language teachers out of business. That's not the point of it all. The point is that something transformative, something miraculous is taking place. And as crazy as it was to go out in the public square in that that polyglot confusion of languages and hear the gospel proclaimed in language that you understood as your own, as strange as that was, this is even stranger if you know human nature. Like one day to go out and hear people speaking in your language who never learned it, that's, that's a miracle But suddenly to have people acting as if their possessions are not their own and selling what they have in order to meet your needs, that's a miracle with a capital M. That's a transformation. Sometimes, occasionally, you get a sign and a wonder, and that's the stuff that fills us with awe. But witnessing this Christian community and its generosity is perhaps as great, if not greater, a sign and a wonder than all of the others. Because the gospel was transforming these people. They were acting against their own self-interest as they would have seen it earlier because the way they saw the world had changed. The way they saw everything had changed. Now, seeing what Christ gives us, encourages us to be eager to give, Believing in the God of providence and a sovereign God who can give all things encourages us to suppress our fear of scarcity. These are gospel transformations, assurances that we have. And just as surely as signs and wonders were done through the apostles, now the owners who have been blessed with property are doing some signs and wonders of their own, I think, that testify just as strongly to the character of that spiritual transformation. This generosity is at the heart of the gospel. It is at the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of what it means to follow Christ, not just believe in him, but to follow him. If you follow him, this kind of generosity is what you're called to. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we think of that as as maybe an emotional statement, if you have affection for one another. But but this kind of love is more than just an affection. It's more than just feeling good about other people and, and liking them. This is a love that would drive you to action. This is a love that would result in people from the outside looking at this community and knowing that these are disciples of Jesus because there is not a needy person among them. They could see it. They wouldn't have to hang out and see, like, how loving do these people seem? They could see the love through the absence of the need. John records that in John 13. In in his epistle, 1 John, in chapter 3, he goes deeper into this. He connects Christian gratitude to the gift that Christ has given us that we're willing to give things up because Jesus has given so much up for us. 
So this is 1 John 3, starting in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we were reading Acts 2 and Acts 4 and telling ourselves, don't worry, it doesn't really mean that, we still have 1 John 3 to reckon with. John says, oh yeah, it means that. It really does. Because if you can witness the need of the brothers around you and do nothing about it, close your heart against them, John says, how could God's love abide in you? How could you possibly claim to follow Christ? How could you possibly believe that that, that you are in Christ's favor if you have closed your heart to his people in need? I hope that cuts deeply. It should. Orthodoxy is more than just believing the right things. It has to lead to action. And the action it has to lead to, above all others, is this kind of selfless generosity. In fact, before you can become a growing community, you have to become a generous one. Before you can become a growing community, you have to become a generous one. If you look at the last few sentences of Acts chapter 2, as Luke sort of brings it to a close, he does something interesting literarily. He brackets those sentences with this repetition, this repeated phrase, day by day, day by day, he says. He gives it to us twice, two day by days. The second one is the one that the churches are interested in. The second day by day in the last verse says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Church growth. The church numerically was growing. They had already added 3,000 people in one day, and now more are being added to their numbers, and that means success. That's growth. That's the kind of growth that every church craves. Numbers. But that comes second, not first. There's something that comes first before that, something more important than that. That second day-by-day statement is prefaced by another day-by-day statement that describes what it is that they are doing day-by-day. Day-by-day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Worship, hospitality, and gratitude. Worship, hospitality, and gratitude. Day by day, over and over, they worshiped. They showed hospitality towards one another. Their hearts were filled with gratitude constantly, constantly. That's the way they lived day by day. Worship. The word, they attended the temple together. This is really early. This is before the Christians are kind of driven out of the the synagogue structure and kind of forced onto their own. They went and they worshiped together. They went and they heard the word proclaimed together. It was important to them to be together in their worship. They broke bread in their homes together. They showed that hospitality, the sacramental hospitality, because, of course, when they went to the temple, what they didn't get to do 
was perform Christian sacraments. That wasn't a thing that was allowed at the temple. So they had to do it in their homes. This, this atmosphere of hospitality, breaking bread with one another in their homes, living together, that, that commonality and gratitude. When they received their food, they received it with glad and generous hearts. Not selfishly, not every man for himself, nothing like that, but giving generously towards one another. Luke says they were praising God, having favor, current grace is what they were having. They had favor in the eyes of all the people, not just the people within the community, but outside the community. Because the reality is the people outside the community may hate what you believe, but when they see what you do, they see there's not a needy one among you. They see the unity of that community. There's something about that. That, that resonates. Something about that, at least, that is admirable. So they worship together in word and in deed. And all the people within and without could see it and approve of it. could see something is happening. A transformation has taken place. This is a wonder to behold. It meant something. The witness of the Christian church was not just its message. The witness of the Christian church was its transformation, what the message did to the people whose heart it took root in. You might doubt the message, but you couldn't doubt the transformation because you could see it with your eyes. It's only after that that Luke mentions the growth, that they grew day by day. If you look around, you'll see there's a lot of things that grow that really shouldn't. A lot of things are successful that shouldn't be. A lot of things are praised that shouldn't be. If you're cynical, you might actually tell yourself that it's because they shouldn't grow that they do grow. That it's almost guaranteed that anything that's popular, that anything that is successful must be bad at its core. You will never go broke, you know, pandering to the lowest common denominator, that sort of thing. That's not what's going on in the growth of the church. We may tell ourselves good things wither and trash thrives, but the kind of growth that is experienced in the church is a growth that that comes through this day-by-day worship and hospitality and gratitude. It comes from the fact that the Christian community of Acts 2 is a generous kingdom. Because of that generosity, it grows. Its growth follows its goodness, in other words. Its growth follows its goodness. And, and, and we can flip that around and say that if it weren't good, it shouldn't grow. If it weren't good, it shouldn't grow. We wouldn't want it to. Oh, we're a church, and we want to grow. We want to grow, right? But I think it's important to remind ourselves that if this isn't a community of worship and hospitality and gratitude, it shouldn't grow. It shouldn't. There's no reason for a church to just grow for, for the sake of growing. It should be what it ought to be. It should be what we're called to be. This should be a generous community, part of a generous kingdom. And by God's grace, it is. As your pastor, I have the 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 privilege of accepting many compliments for things I haven't done. And uh, a better man than me would deflect that praise. I, I deflect it eventually, but I bask in it first and then, then deflect. But uh, 
But it's funny how people say to me, oh, this, this feels different. Right? This community feels different. Like, I, I feel like these things are happening, and I believe that's true. And I would like to believe that, that to the extent that, that we grow, we grow as a result of this faithfulness. First things first, worship, hospitality, gratitude, and then growth. And never the other way around. Never the other way around. Right? To devote ourselves to the things they devoted themselves to. And what that means, just final word, what that means is seeing this problem of generosity differently. There are a lot of things in the Bible that when we read them now, we want to skip over them. We want to say, well, it probably doesn't mean what it seems like it means. And one of the disciplines of a Christian is as you mature is to ask yourself, wait, what if it is? What if this does mean this? What if I really do have to take this seriously? And I want to say to you, this is one of those passages that you have to take seriously. And you've got to look at this and ask yourself, like, why don't you see your stuff the way they did? Why is the idea that, that, that possessions matter less than people, why is that so challenging for us? Because it shouldn't be that way. I'm not asking you to sell all you have and, and bring the proceeds to the church at all. What I'm asking you and myself like, is to ask, why is that such an unimaginable thing? Like, why am I willing to, to believe in, in anything? Double predestination, bring it on. Election, yes. Generosity, well, I don't think it means that. The things we take on faith sometimes are incomprehensible. This is simple. This is really simple. And, and, and we're called to it. The kingdom of God, above all things, is a generous kingdom. The generous kingdom. And if this is a place full of needs that are unmet, if this is a place full of contented people who gladly ignore the need all around them, that this isn't the kind of place that Christ came to found. So let us strive to, to, to live in the light of that generosity that Christ has called us to. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.